You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Good to see all of you. One uh, quick announcement uh, before we end. Uh, Greg, who is in his casual wear today, uh, he's, he's doing a marriage seminar, March 10th, Marriage with Jesus in the Room. It should be in your bulletins. If you haven't gone to it, you're a couple, highly encourage you to go. Super helpful, kind of paradigm-shaping stuff on marriage and how viewing Jesus at the center of our marriage changes the way that we treat each other. So it's in there, March 10th, right, Greg? March 10th and 17th, yeah, it's the, the quickest marriage seminar you can go to. There you go. So right here, Sunday mornings, encourage you to sign up for that. Well, let's uh, go to God's word and prayer today. So Father, we thank you. We celebrate you today and that you are most glorious, most honorable. Your word says, those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me, I will lightly esteem. God, all of us hunger to be honored, to be favored, to be regarded, but I pray we'd seek the glory that only comes from you. Pray it for your sake, Jesus. Amen. So earlier this month, I turned 40, which means, um, no, don't, don't applaud. No, no, don't, no, no, don't applaud. No. Uh, what, here's all that means. It just means I'm no longer a young adult. I'm just an adult, okay? Just a plain old adult. Uh, but to celebrate, my wife did something very cool. She asked a bunch of my friends to write me notes and just tell me why they were grateful for me. And, and I don't know if you ever had that experience, but you know, reading those notes, it is so life-giving. It, it is water to the soul to just hear the appreciation of other people. And and let's be honest, receiving honor, being regarded by those we regard, being praised by the praiseworthy, there's nothing like that, isn't it? It's wonderful. It's wonderful to receive honor, and yet uh, it's itchy to pursue honor, isn't it? Something just feels off about that. I mean, I imagine if I open this talk said, guys, guess what? I'm 40, and uh, my love language is words of affirmation, so we're gonna do a little experiment here. Just take that slip in the seat back in front of you, and I just want you to write why you like me, why you're grateful for me. Go ahead, it might take a while, but just go ahead, and you can start writing. Like, if we did that exercise, uh, the notes would not be very affirming that that came back, Uh, because there is something itchy about pursuing honor. We all sense that. People in our culture sense that. That's why after the Super Bowl, and I know it's too soon, it's too soon, but just hear me out. After the Super Bowl, what does Patrick Mahomes say? He says, first of all, all glory to God. Imagine if he said, first of all, all glory to me. I mean, I'm clearly the best. Everything coming to me is is due. We would despise him even more than we already do. Because there is something about seeking glory that is just shameful. But here's the dilemma. Even if it feels wrong to pursue honor and recognition, there will always be a part of us that wants it. Always. Even if you don't like attention, 
you want people to think well of you. You want people to regard you. At least you want people to take you seriously, don't you? It's hardwired into us. Psychologists say there's a little thing in our brains and they call it a sociometer. You ever heard about this, the sociometer? It's this little ticker in your brain. And, and when someone says something nice, like, hey, you look nice today. Little tick, ding, goes off in our brains. And it signals something about our status. We, we feel better about ourselves, don't we? And here's what's so unique about our culture. That little thing that exists in our brains, now it exists on the internet. It's so interesting. Back in 2009, uh, Facebook introduced the like button. Okay, that's 15 years. Wow. 2009. And, and shortly thereafter, Twitter introduced the retweet button. And, and consequently, uh, these networks just exploded in popularity. Why? Well, one reason is this. For the first time in human history, you could just track your honor in real time. Likes, retweets, right? And so this thing that used to just exist in here, now it exists out here and people got addicted to it. Why? Because we are glory addicts. We are honor addicts. We want recognition and honor. We can't help it. So today I'd like to suggest this, that your longing for honor and glory is not wrong, but it is warped. The problem isn't fundamentally that you want honor my problem is that I look for honor in the wrong place and I seek honor in the wrong way, which means I need God's view of honor. And, and as so often is true in the Bible, God's view of how to get honor is diametrically opposed to the way we would think about getting it. So that's where we're going. And I think the story of Mary just gives us a great insight into our own longing for honor, but also how God intends to fulfill it. So two questions today. First, how does God give glory? Second, how do we receive it? How does God give it? How do we receive it? Sound good? All right, let's go. How does God give honor? Who does God honor and why? Uh, one of America's best-known prosperity preachers answers that question this way. He says, when God's children are poor, broke, and defeated, it doesn't reflect well on God. But when you look good, dress good, live in a nice place, excel in your career, that brings a smile to God's face. It brings him pleasure to prosper you. Now, I don't wanna spend time explaining everything wrong with that statement, but, but this is the point. It is very tempting, even for Christians, to say that God's favor, God's honor, and worldly favor, and worldly honor are basically the same thing. And, and so if you wanna see God's blessing in someone's life, you look at who looks good and dresses good and maybe smells better than you and has a better job than you, and whose family's more put together than you, and who makes more money than you, and has a nicer house than you, and says, okay, that person clearly is favored by God. Here's what's so interesting about Luke's gospel. Luke makes pains to make precisely the opposite point. According to Luke, God's favor often rests on those the world most disfavors. That's certainly the case with Mary. Look how God honors Mary. That's the theme of the day's text. God honors Mary. First, Gabriel honors Mary. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. So last week we read about Zacharias and Elizabeth, 
They can't have a kid. They pray for a kid. God answers. And now Elizabeth is six months pregnant. Fast forward. And now Gabriel appears to a relative of Elizabeth named Mary. Mary is betrothed, which means she has the legal status of a married woman, but she's not married yet. Marriage hasn't been consummated yet. So formal status, but not functionally married. And that's why she's still a virgin. Gabriel says, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. That is not a generic greeting. Whenever that phrase is used in the Old Testament, the Lord is with you, it means, no, really, the Lord is with you. With you in a special way, setting you apart for a special, unique purpose. That's what Gabriel is saying here to Mary. But Mary was greatly troubled at the saying and try to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So Gabriel appears Mary's frightened because people are always frightened in the Bible by angels. But more than frightened, she's confused. She doesn't understand the greeting. Why? Gabriel says, favored one, the Lord is with you. What's the natural question Mary's gonna ask? What does that mean? Why am I favored? And now Gabriel explains how she is favored, that, that God is going to give Mary a son but not just any son, this is the son, the promised son of David, the Messiah. So back in, in 2 Samuel 7, God makes this promise to King David. And he says to David that one of your descendants, I'm gonna install on the throne in Jerusalem and he will reign forever and ever and I will be like a father to him. He will be like a son to me. And so God says to David, I'm gonna establish this reign through your line. There's a future king He'll have this intimate father-son relationship with me. God made a promise and now in Mary, he is keeping that promise. She bears the Messiah. And as you could expect, Mary's head is still spinning. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now think about this. Gabriel said two things. The Lord is with you right now and you're about to have a kid. Can you see why Mary might be confused? Because that sounds like she's about to conceive a child like right now. And now she's really confused. But notice, she's not unbelieving. She's just confused. Her question, how will this be? It could be better translated, how can this be? In other words, Gabriel, how is what you're saying even possible? How is it possible? Because Mary is not dumb. She understands basic human biology. She's a virgin. A pregnant virgin is an oxymoron. It's like an unmarried bachelor. It's like a jumbo shrimp. It's like a Oakland professional sports franchise that cares about its fans. It's, a, it's an oxymoron. <laughs> They'll never go together. Mary has faith. But she seeks understanding. She says, okay, I get it, but how? How can this be? So Gabriel gives another explanation. 
And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. You might remember at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1, God's Spirit hovers over the darkness and breathes life into creation. And now that same Spirit who created life at first is creating life in Mary's womb first creation, and now we have the new creation. The Spirit will overshadow Mary. That word overshadow is used in Exodus 40. At the very end of the construction of the tabernacle, when the tabernacle is finally built, God's presence fills it and overshadows it. So just as God's presence filled the temple, now Mary, God's dwelling place, he will fill Mary and create this new creation who will be called the son of God. Why is that term significant? Well, if you fast forward in Luke to the end of Luke 3, Luke 3.38, Luke gives this long genealogy and at the very end of it, he talks about Adam, the first human being, and he calls Adam what? The son of God. So Adam is the son of God and now Jesus is the son of God and that is very deliberate because Luke wants us to compare and contrast these two figures. Just as the first creation, the first human was a direct creation of God, so Jesus is this direct creation of God. But as the first Adam sinned and screwed everything up, now the last Adam, Jesus will come and fix what Adam broke. So God the Son is becoming the Son of God, the final Adam, the Son of David. It's interesting, you know, in the ancient world, you could be a legal descendant without being a biological descendant. And that's significant in Jesus' case because he's directly created by God, but his legal dad is who? Joseph, who's of the house of who? David. So you can see how God is making good on all of these promises. The final Adam of the house of David, the one who will undo the curse of sin. God is making good on all of his promises and the fulfillment of all of his promises lives inside Mary. Gabriel continues to confirm these words. He gives her a sign. He says, behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. Gabriel, I know all of this seems impossible, but you know your relative Elizabeth and they've been praying forever and they kind of just gave up praying. Guess what? She's pregnant too. And that should confirm to you that God is doing something new and that ultimately nothing is too hard for him. That's the point. Gabriel honors Mary. Next, Elizabeth honors Mary. Luke goes on. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. You see Mary's faith again here, right? Because what did Gabriel say? Your relative is pregnant. That's the sign. What does Mary do? She runs to the house in faith with haste, 80 miles up into the Judean hillside to see that this is the case. She enters the house to see Elizabeth, to get the confirmation of the sign. And here's the beautiful thing. When she goes to get that sign confirmed, God gives her another sign to confirm what's going on. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby, that's John, 
In Elizabeth leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Last week, we saw that in Luke 1.15, Gabriel says Elizabeth will bear John and John would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember when he would be filled? In his mother's womb. And you see the fulfillment of that right away. Even before John is born, even before Jesus is born, John is filled with the spirit in his mother's womb and he's leaping for joy. How does an unborn baby leap for joy? I don't know. But apparently he has joy. He is the first prenatal prophet, right? And he's already doing what God had assigned for him to do, to to herald Christ, to make way, the way of the Lord. He's already rejoicing. He's already fulfilling that role. So John is filled with the spirit and then Elizabeth is filled with the spirit. And before Mary can say anything about the angel, she gets this prophetic insight and she goes, oh, I know what's happening. I know exactly what's happening. And she's stunned. She goes, why do I receive this honor? <laughs> the, the, my Messiah is right there in you. And, and my boy welcomes him. This is so significant. You know, in in Luke's gospel, one of the great themes is that God is at work in the unseen, lowly places. Where, Where does God's work start? In the most unseen place of all in the womb. And if you look throughout scripture, you see that new life carries with it the promise of redemption. You know why? Because you remember the promise that God makes in Genesis 3 at the very beginning when, when we screwed this whole thing up? He promises Eve that the seed of the woman that will come an offspring, that will crush the head of the serpent, that will defeat Satan, that will undo sin and evil. And so new life in the womb is a sign that God is doing something new, that God has not abandoned his world And that's why Christians throughout history view life in the womb with a posture of hospitality that God is creating this life. It's not just biology. God is intervening to do something. I mean, look at this. They're fulfilling their roles in the womb. And this is so different than our culture because our culture says life in the womb is significant if we plan for it. If we intended to have a kid, if we plan for a kid, the kid has significance in the world. But if it's a surprise, if it's unplanned, maybe the baby isn't significant. Maybe the baby isn't even valuable. The Christian view has a completely different starting point because we say life in the womb is significant because even when we don't plan for it, who does? God that he has a purpose for life. And it doesn't start when they're born. It starts before they were born, which which means the unborn are a gift to be received from God. They're they're the vulnerable to protect their neighbors to love. So Gabriel honors Mary. Elizabeth honors Mary. Who ultimately honors Mary? God. And now at the end of the passage, Mary recognizes just how honored she is. Mary says this, my soul 
magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And that's exactly what happened. We're reading it, right? 2000 years later, you're blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. You know, there's a rhythm throughout the Bible, saved people. Do you know what they do when they get saved? They sing. They sing. When God delivers the Israelites, Exodus 15, Miriam and the women, what do they do? They sing that God has delivered them. What does Deborah do? Judges 5, she sings how God has delivered Israel. What does Hannah do in 1 Samuel 2 when God promises Samuel? She sings because God is doing something to deliver his people. And that's why Mary sings here. She knows that the birth of the Messiah means the undoing of the curse of sin, the liberation of Israel. And so she sings. And as we'll see, the tables are turning. Mary is highly favored by God. Yes? It's very clear. Here's the million dollar question. Why? Why does God show favor to Mary? Why did he choose Mary? You ever thought about that? Early in Christian history, people began to revere Mary and they began to think of Mary as being chosen because there was some merit in her. There was some thing in her that merited being used by God in that way. And one thing that happens, the church father, Jerome, he translated the Greek New Testament into Latin. And when he translated Greek into Latin, you'll notice verse 28, Gabriel calls Mary the favored one or highly favored. Jerome translated that as full of grace, full of grace. Now that gives a subtle shift in meaning, doesn't it? Because now it's not just that Mary is the recipient of grace, it's that she's the what? The bestower of grace, which is why our Catholic friends still pray what? Hail Mary, full of grace grace. And that's a very powerful conception throughout the history of the church that Mary is this dispenser of blessing and grace. It's interesting, an early version of uh, Cinderella, you know, the fairy tale, it's not the fairy godmother who shows up for Cinderella. It's actually Mary to, uh, to bless Cinderella and exalt her. But here's the question, you know, if we ask the question, okay, what merit qualified Mary to receive this honor, I think Luke would say we're asking the wrong question. It's the wrong question because Luke's point is this, that God is deciding to show favor, not on the person we most expect. It's the person we least expect. And you see this when you compare Mary with Zachariah. I think Luke is very deliberate in presenting Zachariah and Mary and telling us, do a little compare and contrast here. And here's why, Zachariah is the guy we expect to get blessed. Mary is not. Think about the differences between them. Zachariah, he's part of a priestly line. That's a big deal. He's got family status. Mary has no inherited status. In that culture, Zachariah is a man, which would mean higher status than a woman. He's also elderly, which would be higher status than the young. What is Mary? A young woman. Moral status, Zachariah and Elizabeth are called righteous, blameless. They have a reputation for following God. Nothing is said of Mary's reputation. Think about where Zachariah hears from God. Remember where he is? He's praying where? In the temple, as close as he's ever gonna get to God's presence. Like if you were gonna hear from God, that's where you expect to hear from God, right? But the same angel shows up 
where in Nazareth? To Mary. And if you read the rest of the New Testament, apparently Nazareth wasn't a great place, right? Can anything good come from Nazareth? So this is not the place we would expect. You know, it's like when I try to explain San Leandro to people from around the rest of the country. They're like, where is that? Where's San Leandro? Like, it's a great city. It's wonderful. It's like just south of Oakland. It's like 25 minutes from San Francisco. They're like, I don't care anymore, right? They're like, it's just an obscure place. So he shows up in Nazareth and he confounds our expectations. Think about Zechariah. When Gabriel visits him, it's in response to persistent prayer from Zechariah and Elizabeth. There's no persistent prayer from Mary. He just shows up. He's just there. Here's Luke's intent, is that we should be surprised that Mary, of all people, was the one chosen. This is a surprising honor. And here's the point. The honor that Mary receives is so far above the honor Zacharias and Elizabeth receive, Right? It's unexpected, and yet she's exalted above them. In fact, Elizabeth is honoring Mary, right? The older is honoring the younger, the higher status person honoring the lower status person. This is all part of Luke's point that God is at work to exalt lowly people. And you will see that again and again and again and again in Luke that the rich and the powerful and the elite and the people the world favors, the people we would say, oh, they're blessed by God. Guess what? They miss out. They're excluded from the kingdom. They reject Jesus. And in fact, they've, they've had their fill and they miss out on the kingdom of God. But the poor and the downtrodden and the oppressed and the cast out are highly favored in God's kingdom. And it happens again and again and again. So what is the point why does God do that? God exalts the poor and lowly. You know why? Who does it humble? The proud and lofty. Anyone who thinks they have it together in life, anyone who thinks they're competent or sufficient, here's Luke's point. The tables are turning. You think you're in God's favor, you have it wrong. God's kingdom is working where you don't expect it to. This is the point of Mary's prayer. What does she say? She goes on to say this. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her for about three months and then returned to her home. What does Mary see here? See, Mary's a picture of Israel, lowly, oppressed, beaten down. That's Israel when this is written, right? Israel has been under the thumb of Rome and before that under the thumb of Greece and before that under the thumb of Persia and before that under the thumb of Babylon. And for hundreds of years, they are oppressed and put down and Mary knows the Messiah is coming, which means those who are low are about to get exalted. The deliverer is coming, the tables are turning, and the kings of the world better take note because God is going to deliver his people. This is a very Jewish prayer here. Now, does Mary understand how Jesus is going to fulfill all of these promises right now? No, she doesn't. And yet what she says is true because when Jesus comes on the scenes, the tables do turn and you'll see it again and again in Luke. And again and again, we're warned about the danger of riches and seeking status 
and that God is favoring those of low estate. Why? Well, one reason, and we'll see it again and again, is that we would associate with the lowly. That ultimately to be on God's side is to care about those who are most beaten down and oppressed because a judgment is coming where the tables return and everything will get reversed. And on that day, the people who cared for the lowly and poor in faith in Jesus will be shown to be in the right. The spiritual reason for all of this is this. God continually honors the poor and lowly to humble proud and lofty people. You think you got it figured out? You think you've got glory? You don't have the glory that comes from God. God wants to humble us. Here's why. Jesus says it. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The only way to get exalted by God, the only way is down. It's to humble yourself. That's it. That's the way to glory. See, we need glory and honor. We need regard, actually, as humans. The problem is we look for it in the wrong place. We look for it from a boss or from a companion or from a relationship or from culture. And all that need for glory and honor, it's never gonna fill you up. It's just gonna frustrate you and disappoint you because you were made to receive a better honor. Whose honor were you made to receive? God's. And there is no greater satisfaction, there is no greater peace, there is no greater pleasure than knowing that God is pleased with me, that I am in the right with him. And the only way to get there is down, is to humble yourself because it's an inviolate law. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That's why God exalts the humble. It's to humble self-exalted people like me, okay? So then the million dollar question is this, if that's how God gives glory, how do you receive glory? Well, you already know the answer, right? The way is down. Humble yourself. What does humility look like? Three things really quick and then we're done. Here's what I love about Mary. She's not only objectively of a humble status, she's lowly, she's downtrodden. She's also an example of what humility looks like. This is what humility before the Lord looks like. Three things. First, humility does not presume God's favor. Don't you love Mary's astonishment through this whole thing? It's like, really me? You're gonna use me? She doesn't expect that God is gonna use her in this earth shattering way. She's astonished. She's just as surprised as we are. Elizabeth's astonished. Why do I have the honor of being in the presence of my Messiah? You're just surprised by the goodness of God. That's humility. Humility is, is being surprised by the mercy of God in your life. When's the last time you were surprised by the mercy of God in your life? When things went well, did you think about time? Or did you think, wow, Lord, you are so good. Are you surprised every time something goes wrong? Or are you surprised every time something goes right? It's a fundamentally different way of looking at the world, isn't it? Well, let me give you an example. Like, so last night, I go to Safeway and I'm backing out. And as I'm backing out, I look behind me once, good. Look behind me again, like 100 yards away, there's a guy going like 50 miles an hour, just bolting down the road, right? So I'm like, here it is. And whoop, Goes across me the last minute. Now, there's two ways I can respond right there, right? Well, there's probably more. There's two. One, 
is, you idiots, what are you thinking? The other thought after that was, I hope you get in an accident. That's why that was a little part of me I had to repent of after that. Like, <laughs> I hope you crash, not another person into something though, right? Second, but, but the other way to respond is like, like that changes my day, changes my week, month, maybe year. If that guy hits me, oh, thank you, Jesus. And that is the posture of humility. Look for the signs of God's mercy in your life. And the more you look, the more surprised you will be that they are there in so many little ways. God is doing thousands of things in our life right now. We just have to have the eyes to see it. Am I surprised by God's mercy, right? Pride says, I have all this coming to me. Things should never go wrong. Humility says, wow, things went right. Thank you, Jesus. By the way, that's just a better way to live in general. It's a happier way to live. Second, humility obeys God's word before it has the full picture. Don't you love Mary? She's so confused. And guess what? In chapter two, she's still confused. And she's still confused after that. She's just confused because this is confusing, isn't it? It's very confusing. And so I want to settle a dispute, right? And, and it was, right, like, so you got the song, Mary, did you know, right? Mary, did you know? Let's just answer that. No. <laughs> no, she didn't know, okay? She's confused, right? She's not like, oh, the hypostatic union is taking place in my womb, right? And yeah, the God man has come, but to deliver in an unexpected way. Like, no, she has no idea. She's confused. And yet she obeys, she doesn't see the full picture. She doesn't know what she's signing up for. No, she really doesn't. And yet she believes it's from God and says what? Let it be to me according to what? Your word. And Elizabeth said, that's why she's blessed. Blessed is she who believed there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Here's humility. You take God at his word and obey before you have a full explanation why. That's humility. Pride says it needs to satisfy my criteria and then I'll obey. That's not faith, that's called sight. Also, it's pride and here's why. God says, do this. And then we say, yeah, you need to explain to me a little more why. Okay, I will. Now do it. Okay, now you need to explain to me more. That's, that's serving God in an advisory role. That's what that is. You say, God, until it meets my criteria, I won't do it. That's not faith. That's not humility. Like I go over this with my kids all the time. I have a perspective they don't have, right? And right now the battle is brushing their teeth two times a day, not just once, but twice. And I'm, I'm dying on this hill, Okay. I am dying on this hill. You will brush your teeth before you leave for school. And so I'm like getting them back out of the van, like get in there, brush your teeth, right? And, but gently, not really. But like I'm, I, I, and, and I'm like, here's why. You will thank me in 40 years, okay? Because you don't want your teeth to fall out. Because A, it's horrible, and B, I'm not paying for it, okay? Because it's on you if this happens. So do it. All right, and there's like, it's not that big a deal. It's not that big a deal. We're going back and forth. Like I am not going to print out more articles to convince them they need to do it. They don't have my perspective. They just don't have my perspective. So just do it and believe this is good. And they are, right? They're, they're good kids. They're doing it. But God has an eternal time horizon. 
that he's accomplishing things on. And he says, do this. You don't need to understand all of the outcomes to do it. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? So a question to ask is where am I avoiding obedience? Where I already know the thing to do. I'm just not doing it. I'll tell you this right now. You will never get a better justification than right now. It's not about needing more reasons to do it, to confess from that sin, to repent of that thing, to stop doing that thing, to start doing the thing you know you were supposed to be doing. Here's why. If you keep seeking understanding on this side of obedience, you won't get it. Because he who seeks to exalt himself will be humble. But if you obey, then you will understand. In fact, the understanding will come through obeying and seeing God work and fulfill his promises and then the humble get exalted. Does that make sense? So that's two. Third one is this. Humility sees that every blessing is from God and he knows that we're blessed. Why? To bless others. Don't you love that Mary, the minute she receives this honor, she sees the bigger implications. She goes, this isn't for me. Who's it for? It's for everyone. It's not really about my honor ultimately. It's about God blessing me to help who? His servant Israel. God is redeeming his people and he's giving me the honor of playing this role. But it's not about my blessing. It's about the blessing of others. And a humble person looks at every blessing in their life that way. Anything God has given you, we're not a dam of blessing. We're not a reservoir, right? The the point of God's blessing is not to make us the richest, wisest, healthiest, wealthiest, best looking people in the world. It's not it. All of those blessings are gifts to be stewarded to bless other people. And a humble person says, I'm not the owner, I'm the steward. So God gives me more time, that's more time to invest in his kingdom. God gives me more treasure, that's more treasure to be generous with. God gives me a talent, that's a talent to use for his purposes. It's all for him. Blessed to be a blessing. That's humility. That is the walk of faith. The road to humility is down. And we know it because that was Jesus' path to greatness, wasn't it? That he who was in the form of God did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped and used for his own vantage. But what did he do? He humbled himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of man. And humbling himself, he became obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. Jesus starts at the highest and goes all the way down. And Paul says, therefore, because Christ humbled himself, God has highly exalted him because those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus led the way. You know how you come to Christ? Here's how no one comes to Christ on their feet. No one comes standing. The only way to come to Jesus if you don't know him is on your knees. You have to humble yourself before him because when you come to Jesus, you're not saying, Jesus, I need a better coach for my life. Jesus, I need a few life hacks to make things better. Jesus, I need better moral teaching. I didn't like the moral teaching of Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam. This is the better moral teaching. So that's why I'm gonna, you're not saying that fundamentally. You're saying, I need a savior. I need a deliverer from sin. I can't fix my life. Jesus, would you save me? And the beautiful thing about that confession of helplessness is that is when God is most near to us because blessed are the poor in spirit. Isaiah 57 says it this way. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell, God says, in the high and holy place. That's where God dwells. 
the most glorious place, the place you can't get to. Do you know where else God dwells? With him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. If you're brokenhearted and exhausted and desperate and says, I can't fix anything in my life, I can't even fix myself, guess what? You're in the perfect place. That's where God is near. And coming to Jesus is just saying help. (laughs) That's really it is, help. Jesus, thank you for doing what I couldn't do, dying for my sin that I'd have forgiveness, rising to save me from myself and from death and from God's wrath. Come into my life, make me the person you want me to be. Let's pray. So Jesus, we thank you for, for giving us the ultimate example of humility. That Jesus, even though you deserve all honor and all glory, Uh, Lord, you humbled yourself to take abuse and scorn and rejection and even suffer death to save us. And for that, we highly exalt you this morning, Jesus. We exalt you for doing what you did not have to do, but coming and taking the lowly place to save us. And so Jesus, would we follow your example and go low, humbling ourselves, associating with the lowly, Jesus, pouring ourselves out for your kingdom, trusting that you, Father, will exalt us at the right time. Pray it in your name, amen.